if I don't speak loud enough, let me know. I don't have the strongest voice in the world. If the, you may have noticed, there wasn't a title on your sheet uh, today, and I was thinking if I had if I had given one to Michael, I would have said Philippians one twenty one: "To live is Christ, to die is gain." And as you can see that the title of, of today's sermon is called Wisdom or Folly. It's about the book of Ecclesiastes. You think, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> this is really going to be exciting. <laughs> I'll give you a warning. What you hear today is not a typical exegetical sermon that you would hear from a Zach Cruz in a Reformed tradition. I've got to admit that I'm amazed at the manner in which Zach can take an everyday, if there is such a thing as an everyday part of Scripture, and he can just go through it line by line and always adding to it, you know, magnifying it and, and increasing our knowledge. It doesn't matter if it's a short episode or a long episode. He can dissect it. And it's a talent we should all be grateful for. Instead, today, you're going to get something which is more like a lecture. It's references throughout Scripture. Today's sermon, I say that in quotes, sermon, is on the book of, you're probably all going to want to jump up and yell and be happy about this, is on the book of Ecclesiastes. Hoping to answer the question, What is the message and the purpose of this strange and difficult book? I do want to say, though, you can blame Brian Prunty for this. About two months ago, he comes up to me and says, Hey, Brother Page, I've got a present for you. It's this book. It's called Living Life Backwards. And... It's about the book of Ecclesiastes, and we looked at each other, and we were in agreement that neither one of us really understood the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I guess you've read it. That's, that's why you promoted it to me, and I have read it, and it was really a blessing to me. That's why I thank you, Brian. The author of this book... Living Life Backward is a man named David Gibson. He has a Ph.D. from the University of Aberdeen. He's a minister of Trinity Reformed Church, not in Newcastle, Colorado, but in Aberdeen, Scotland. On page one of his book, he references the well-known atheist Christopher Hitchens. Have, have any of you heard of Christopher Hitchens? I think he's died in the last couple of years. Hitchens quotes the words of the Scottish poet, William Dunbar. Quote, The fear of death distresses me. Unquote. The fear of death distresses me. To which Hitchens comments, Quote, I would not trust anyone who had not felt something like it. So here's Christopher Hitchens, this great intellectual. He's had that same sense of fear of death, which probably touches everybody. 
probably know what he means. Pastor Gibson goes on to say that only a proper perspective on death provides the true perspective on life. This is the perspective I hope to describe today. But let's start with a question. How many of us, or who among us, believes they have a good understanding of and could give a plain and understandable lesson about, not Ecclesiastes, but another challenging book, the book of the Revelation of Christ. For years, I avoided that book because it was so strange and seemed so alien to anything we experience. My mind was changed about that to a large degree because Margie and I have a video series at home by Robert Godfrey, who's a member of Ligonier Ministries, for and it's 10 or 12 sections long, that, you know, going through the book of Revelation. So actually, we came to think, well, it's not quite as difficult to understand <laughs> as you'd think when you read it. Well, there's another book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, I would guess a truly neglected book, which falls into such a category. And perhaps you, like me, have avoided it, because it is, what, so different, so confusing, so seemingly contradictory. We might even read it and ask, how is it related to the message of Christ? If you have read Ecclesiastes, how many of you could give a quick summary of it, especially to an unbeliever or a quite young Christian? I couldn't. At least not until reading this book, Living Life Backwards. Maybe we should start at the simplest point, the title Ecclesiastes. What does that term come from? The word comes from the Greek language, referring to a preacher, in this case, the preacher, King Solomon, the author of the book. The word has two parts, E.K., in the Greek, which literally means out, as in the word exit. And it has a second part, kalin, if I'm pronouncing it right, which means to call. From this we get ecclesia, or ecclesiastical, which means an assembly or meeting. In our case, the called out ones. That is, the church, the elect. We see this used in Romans 8, 28, and 30. Quote, And we know that all things work together for good to those who are, who can say it, the called. And it called according to God's purpose. And in verse 30, it goes on to say, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. If you are here today as a believer, you have undergone all of these actions except the last, glorification. And that is the action that this book, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is aiming towards. We also have 1 Peter 2.9, quote, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, 
that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here we are, the called out ones, who in the 21st century read the book Ecclesiastes and we scratch our heads trying to connect it to the great sweep of Scripture. We read it, perhaps I should say, I read it and found it very confusing and somewhat intimidating. How can this be? After all, in my Bible, it is barely over 11 pages long. That's about that much. Approximately that much. And this includes room at the bottom of each page for footnotes and cross-references. It takes about 21 minutes to read the book of Ecclesiastes. So why should we be intimidated when it is very easy to read a good old Louis L'Amour Western of 150 to 200 pages and take several hours to do it? Of course, if you read the book in 21 minutes and put it down and walk away, you have gained nothing but confusion. Anyone who reads it seriously will be stopped and astonished at some of its claims. They will probably be confused by the observations that Solomon, the author of the book, made, which seemed to contradict each other and even contradict teachings in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is chock full of statements that make you scratch your head and ask, how should I understand such and such verse? When comparing it to other verses about the same subject elsewhere in the Bible. Think about the way wisdom is usually portrayed in the Bible. For example, Proverbs 4.7. Quote, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom and in all you're getting, get understanding. Unquote. Or Proverbs 16.16. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is better than silver. Or in the New Testament, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But now, by contrast, how is wisdom described in Ecclesiastes? Listen to just chapter, in chapter 1, 12 through 18. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man, by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were born before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind. And here's the key verse. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It doesn't seem to agree with those other verses about wisdom, does it? 
Paul. If we look closely, we will find two types of wisdom in the Bible. We read in the book of James, chapter 3, about both kinds. Demonic wisdom, which is earthly and sensual, and that wisdom from above, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, and without hypocrisy. The serpent in the garden represents that type of wisdom. He is described as more cunning than any beast of the field. The second wisdom is that imbued by the Holy Spirit. Earthly wisdom is folly and is always haunted by the specter of death. The point of Pastor Gibson's book is to announce a mindset, a process that he calls living life backward. That renounces the specter of death. And we'll get back to that idea as we go along. Meanwhile, back in King Solomon's 21-page book, he describes his efforts to find peace of mind by exploring every avenue of human pleasure, achievement, knowledge, even madness and folly. And his conclusion, for a time at least, was in chapter 1, verse 18. Quote, in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Kind of gives you, oh boy, I don't have to be knowledgeable about the Bible. I don't want to increase my sorrow. Think again of the demonic wisdom of Adam and Eve, initiated by Satan himself. So, is the Bible advocating here for ignorance in order to be happy? By ignorance, I don't necessarily mean stupidity, but a a refusal, perhaps even an inability, to accept the inevitability of the one event that hovers over all people, that being, you could fill in this sentence, death. Even Solomon, 3,000 years ago, had the same desires and emotions and the resources to attempt to fulfill them. Even Solomon, regarded regarded as the wisest of men, tried the route of pleasure in every aspect of his life. Quoting chapter 2, verse 10, Solomon says, I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. And his conclusion, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. This result was not as severe in Solomon as in the vast majority of humanity, because at some point, by God's grace, he began to understand. In chapter 2, verse 13, we read, Then I, Solomon, saw that wisdom exceeds folly, as light exceeds darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And then comes the point of his understanding. I myself, Solomon, perceive that the same event happens to all, unquote. Now, you can guess to what event he is referring. Death again. In answering this question, we are closing in on the one factor that energizes the whole theme of the book, Ecclesiastes, and also Reverend Gibson's book. 
Now there is a strange and disturbing verse in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. Think about this statement in verse 5. Quote, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Sounds like a pessimist, doesn't he? What does he mean by mourning? Mourning here, he's referring to a funeral. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Simply saying, death comes to all. We know, but to, but to see the, the Bible put it so directly, it's, just, it's almost shocking. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the, heart, is in the house of mirth. At this point, I want to read directly a section from Reverend Gibson's book. Reverend Gibson says, In my opinion, the preacher is saying that the day of your death is a better teacher than the day of your birth. When a new baby is born, there is virtually nothing we can say about her beyond vague impressions or physical resemblance to one of the parents or grandparents. Oh, we say she's so like her mom. Possibly, but that's, that's about it. Now fast forward to the day of that baby's death. 86 years later. What can we say about her then? She was so like Jesus. She was so kind, so generous. What depth of where there was to her as a person. Or you could say she loved her garden. She loved her knitting. She loved her bingo. She loved filling the blank. You choose something to fill in that blank that really isn't very much at all. Or you could say she didn't really love anything or anyone very much apart from herself. Or she lived for herself alone. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Not because death is better than life. It's not. But because a coffin is a better preacher than a cot. I think he's talking about... If you just relax, you may lay down on your cot and try to forget about your problems. When life ends or is about to end, absolutely everything else comes into focus. I can remember when my dad was within a day or two of, of death. I was in his bedroom and he, he said, I'm just lying here dying and there's not a thing I can do about it. Pretty, isn't it? But things that don't really matter, but which we give so much time to, now seems so empty and pointless. The lives we touched and the generosity we showed and the love we gave, gave or received now mean so much more. That's what the preacher Solomon is saying. A coffin preaches better than sermons. Better sermons than a cot. Look forward, he says, he, as he grabs us by the shoulders. Don't be a fool. Stop trying to escape life's agonies by drowning them away, by laughing them off and pretending they don't exist. Look forward to the day of your death and ask yourself, what kind of person should I be? 
For one day I will be dead. Quote, again, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And then, says the preacher, let me tell you this. I will put my life in order when I went to the funeral home. When I went, death said to me, come in and stay a while. I have a seat. Stop and think. And I listened to what death said to me. It is very important to be clear. The person who lives like this is not morbid. Only someone who knows how to weep will really know what it means to laugh. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. It's an invitation to be a person who realizes that having a good life means preparing to die a good death. Have you ever met people like this? They're actually fully alive, engaged with the world and their family and the goodness of creation because they know that they have it all on loan. It's a gift and that one day God will simply call time, but when he does, they're ready to go. Will you let death teach you the limitations of your life? Will you let it reshape your goals, your attitudes, the things you long for and work for, pray for and hope for the most? For death is not your Lord and does not own you. It never ever can be if you are in Christ. Then it can teach you. Now I'm going to go ahead just a couple of pages and we're going to take a little different look at this. Again, reading from this book. He, he He's looking at death from several different angles and one of them is that, uh, using the term nostalgia. And this is what he says about it. He quotes verse 10, chapter 7. Say not, quote, Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Unquote. It's very common to hear this sentiment today, almost word for word. Things aren't like they used to be. Why is the world getting so bad? Violent crime is on the rise. I'm glad I didn't have to bring up my children in these days. But here's how I think the preacher in Ecclesiastes would respond to people who say things like this. This is kind of funny in a way. If you think you're living in a world where things are getting worse all the time, then cheer up. At least you'll be dead before things get really bad. <laughs> Maybe the past was better than the present. But when you start asking, why was it better? What you are doing is denying the reality of God's presence in the present. If you think things are worse, do you think God is no longer in control? Do you think he hasn't brought you to the point we are now and that he no longer loves you or has plans or purposes for you? To ask the question in verse 10 is this. is unwise because it forgets about God. Often when we ask this, it's because we are blind to the good things of the present and ignorant of the evil of the past. Nostalgia is a form of escapism by taking a vacation in the past instead of grappling with the present or looking to the future in faith. When you experience nostalgia, 
Your heart is longing for a more beautiful person than you have ever met or a more beautiful place than you have ever known. You think you're longing for the past, but the past was never as good as your mind is telling you it was. And then he, he describes something C.S. Lewis has said about it. C.S. Lewis says, God is giving you in that moment one of the most profound glimpses of the intensity of perfection and beauty that you have actually yet to see. What is in fact pulling on your heartstrings is the future. It's heaven. It's your sense of home and belonging that has just cracked the surface of your life for just a moment and then is gone. God has placed eternity in our hearts. We're built for home, for a place we cannot yet see. And so when we get that flashing moment of nostalgia, it's like tiny pinpricks of that eternal home breaking through into our present life. Wise people who understand how God has made us to long for him and for heaven don't look backward when they get nostalgic. They allow the feeling to point forward. They look up to heaven and to home. Now, if I can find where I was in my own notes here, <laughs> bear with me. Um, okay, here we go. In the twelfth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, we read things that change in your life as you about things that change in your life as you reach old age. How many of you have reached that point? Things that happen as you grow less quick and agile. Your eyesight and hearing are not as, not as they once were. And you can't even keep your house up as you once did. In chapter 12, verses 6 and 7 of Ecclesiastes, we read about such a situation. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Jeremy and Julianne. <laughs> Nicholas and Tasha. Before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them, remember your Creator before the silver co- cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. This sequence of things in one's life slowly deteriorating and becoming difficult in their life reminded me of a song I knew as a child. This is some sheet music from my life as a child. It's seen better days. Some of you may remember there was a singer, country singer by the name of Stuart Hamblin, and the, the song was This Old House. Anybody recall it at all? Good. And there's a couple. And, you know, I just played this. I played accordion as a kid, and I would play this song, and, and you know, I enjoyed it, just the rhythm and everything in it. But uh, I want to read some of the, the lines to you. And see, I thought at the time, this, goes, this man, Stuart Hamblin, must have been aware of the book of Ecclesiastes. Because there are just elements in this song that fit with it. Okay. Do you want me to sing it to you? (laughs) This old house once knew my children. This old house once knew my wife. 
This old house was home and comfort as we fought the storms of life. This old house once rang with laughter. This old house heard many shouts. Now she trembles in the darkness when the lightning walks about. Then the chorus. Ain't I gonna need this house no longer? Ain't I gonna need this house no more? Ain't got time to fix the shingles. Ain't got time to fix the floor. Ain't got time to oil the hinges nor to mend no window panes. Ain't gonna need this house no longer. I'm getting ready to meet the saints. I'm on, I won't sing that, that again, but listen to the other verses as we go along. This old house is getting shaky. And of course, you remember again in Ecclesiastes, there's a section in where it talks about your body finally giving out, and, and it des- describes it as a house that's falling apart because you, you, know, you, you get old and you can't take care of it well again, and this sort of stuff. And, and anyway, he's, it just sounds like he's aware of this. This old house is getting shaky. This old house is getting old. This old house lets in the rain. This old house lets in the cold. On my knees I'm getting chilly, but I feel no fear nor pain, because I see an angel peeking through a broken window pane. Before I go on, the story behind this song, he says that Stuart Hamlin said he and a friend were riding up, probably in a jeep, up in the Sierras years ago. Had been back in the, probably the late 40s, maybe before that. And... Um, they came up on an old ramshackle cabin, and uh, they got up to it, and they said there was a, it was a skinny, emaciated old hound dog lying there on the porch, and they went in and looked around. The door was down, and they went into the back room, and there was an old man lying in there dead. Figured he'd been dead for a couple of weeks. And they got, of course, they, they left. I guess they took the dog with them, and... Um, Later he got to thinking about that, and that was the motivation for writing this song. So then you get to um, verse 3. This old house is afraid of thunder. This old house is afraid of storms. This old house just groans and trembles when the night wind swings its arms. This old house is a-getting feeble. This old house is a-getting old. Just like me, it's tuckered out, but I'm a-getting ready to meet the saints. Verse 4. My old hound dog lies asleep and he don't know I'm going to leave. Else he'd wake up by the fireplace and he'd sit there and howl and grieve. But my hunting days are over. Ain't going to hunt the coon no more. Gabriel done brought in my chariot when the wind blew down the door. I think this old man was, he, he's imagining that, you know, that this old man was ready to go. But it shows you that Stuart Hamlin had some know-how about doctrine and theology. I just get the biggest kick out of that when I think about this. So I just wanted to share that with you. And then um, maybe that's about it. Just, uh, again, getting back to the, to the title of the, of the book itself, Living Life Backward. We tend to live our lives, here we are, oh boy, next month I'm going to do this, and by five years from now will I be here, you know, this sort of thing. And uh, so often the things disappoint you when you get there. But he says that's not the way a Christian should live. We should live and looking forward to the time when we'll be with our Savior. And that's Philippians 4.21. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So we should not be living in the past and remembering it or thinking about tomorrow as much, but saying I'm ready when my time comes. So, thank you, and...
Go home and read Ecclesiastes.